0: That's marketplace.walmart.com
1: slash savings.
0: Welcome to eCommerce Conversations,
1: a podcast by Practical E-Commerce. What's going on, internet? Eric Van Holtz back again with another e commerce Conversations. I don't know why it's taken me this long to do it, but Ezra Firestone is on the other end of uh, the internet from me. What's going on, Ezra?
0: We Happy to be here, man. Thanks so much. I'm an old-school practical e-commerce reader from way back in the day, so super happy to be on this.
1: So for those who don't know Ezra, first of all, you're probably living under a rock or in a cave somewhere, but he's the founder of Zipify, founder of Smart Marketer, and founder of Boom, right? Founder for all of them or CEO? Did I get all the titles right?
0: Yeah, founder for all of them. Co-founder of Boom, co-founder of Zipify. So founded those with other folks, uh, co-founders in each of those. And you know, I've had many e-commerce brands. My first e-commerce brand was a wig business all the way back in 2007. And I was America's number one mullet wig, Afro wig, Elvis wig retailer online back then. So that was a lot of fun and. I've just never looked back, man, from the dropshipping days to the SEO days to the Google AdWords days. Like I've just been in love with this business and I got lucky enough to kind of grow up in it and sort of fall into it at a time before the iPhone, before it was cool. And yeah, it's been my sort of life's work and I've been fortunate enough to also kind of... Be recognized as one of the voices in the community that's worth listening to, which has been fun for me because I really enjoy engaging with and relating with other e-commerce business owners. So I'm, I'm stoked, man.
1: Yeah. So if anyone's listening and you see Ezra Firestone on a event, go to it and go to his talks. Like you are going to walk away with a lot of information on how to, I mean, really like just generate revenue, man. That's the name of the game for you, right? You've done over 115 million with Boom in just five years. It's unreal, man. Yeah.
0: I mean, well, I mean, that's, that is true. And also, I founded Boom in 2010. And, you know, from 2010 to 2015, I think I made, well, 2014, right? So, for the first four years, I barely made any money. I made a couple hundred grand a year. And then 2015, I, as when first year I made a couple million bucks. And then 2016, I made 20 million. And then I've been rocking since then. So, it took me a while to catch my ground. And the reason for that was, you know, when I founded Boom, there wasn't really contextual traffic available, right? Boom is not a query. You can't qu- buy query based traffic for Boom. There's nobody searching for pro age cosmetics or makeup for older women. Like it's not. When I founded it, the main source of visibility for econ brands was search traffic. And I was, you know, leveraging YouTube and blogging and, you know, the little bit of contextual display advertising that was available on the Google content network all the way back then. And then, you know, the reason I really took off in 2014 and beyond is because. The sort of mass uh, availability via Facebook of um, contextual traffic. So, you know, the ability to put messages in front of people based on context that you have about them and tell stories to those folks. And my brand was really perfect for that.
1: Yeah. And I feel like, you know, one of my lessons that I learned in the early days is you got to put money into advertising to see advertising work. And I've always been, you know, like an organic first kind of guy. And, I think in my older age I'm kind of switching from organic to paid because I'm seeing a lot more of the potential in paid. One thing you've always said is you think you should spend up to 30% of your top line on advertising. Is that correct or
0: Well, I think between 15 and 30%. So as an example, if you make a million dollars a year in revenue. This isn't profit, right? Revenue top line like you said, I think you should be spending 150 000 to 300,000 the next year on paid amplification. And you know, of course margins come into play and Scale of business comes into play, but like my viewpoint is the goal should be to grow the company. And if you're not investing in growth and look, you can say, Hey, my photo shoots, my design for my email headers. If you want to put that under marketing, go right ahead you can stick that in that 30%. So you can stick the assets that you need to market the cost of those in there. If you want, I don't, if you look at my P and L, I have a KPI sheet every week. And in fact, it literally just came in today. And one of my KPIs on there, I'm happy to tell you the rest of them, but one of my KPIs is marketing spend as a percentage of net revenue. And that is Facebook, Google, Pinterest, and those are mainly places we spend money on traffic, add it up and what percentage of that versus our net revenue. And it's always between 30 and 35% every week, and we do our best to keep it there. And if we're not spending that much, we know that we're not investing enough to grow the, the company.
1: How do you know that balance between, you know, I'm spending money, but it's not really driving revenue. So subsequently, your percentage of spend goes up, but your revenue is going down. Are you one of those like high level ad spenders? Or what are really the metrics to tell you whether or not ads are performing or not?
0: So I focus on a couple metrics, you know, average order value, cost per acquisition, and lifetime customer value. And so, you know, my average order value is really important and i optimize that all the time via you know upsells on every page bundle that from the product page to the cart to the post purchase checkout to the thank you page you know bundles all that kind of stuff upgrade options you know multiple sizes my cpa or my cost per customer acquisition that's the one that i monitor the most as it relates to advertising and i know based on each pillar of advertising, what I can afford to spend. And I give you a barometer, but I'll tell you what I do. If my top line customer acquisition, where I'm going out trying to buy a new customer who's never heard about me, cold audiences, awareness pillar is over $70. I can't sustain that. And so what I'll do is I'll drop my budget. I'll modify my creative. I'll switch my audiences. Like if it gets over 70 bucks in the top of the funnel, can't afford that. If it gets over 40 bucks in the remarketing pillar, I can't afford that. And if it gets over $20 in the loyalty pillar, which is people who've already bought from me, right? Remarketing is someone who's seen an ad or been on my website or whatever. So I look for a one to two return on ad spend at the top of funnel. Now one return on ad spend, keep in mind at the very top of the funnel is not break even. It's actually losing money because that's saying I spent 75 and I brought back 75. That's a one row as well. If you bring back 75 out of that, you got your cost of goods, right? And you've got your salary and all your overhead so it's like you're not profitable so but with the remarketing and loyalty and the revenue that you generate from your you know brand search and your direct traffic and your email list i look for a one to two return on ad spend at the top of the funnel a two to four return on ad spend in remarketing and a three to eight return on ad spend in loyalty those are the ROAS targets And I have CPA targets as well. And of course, your CPA targets are going to depend on your margins. And one thing I tell people is never spend more than double your profit to acquire a customer. So as an example, if your average order value is 50 bucks and your profit on that is 25 on the initial order, at the very top of your funnel, I'm throwing a lot of numbers at you, but at the very top of your funnel in awareness pillar, never spend more than $50 to acquire a customer because if you spend $50 to acquire a customer, that is double the profit of that order. And you can make that back via remarketing, loyalty, upsell, cross-sell, lifetime customer value. But if you go over double the profit of your order at the top of the funnel, it's very hard to scale a profitable business.
1: What is your take on iOS? What is it? 14 and, and a half and their limitations or neutering of remarketing. Are you readjusting your strategy with that?
0: Well, it's one of those things and everybody's freaked out about this And I and I understand it's a big change for sure. But the thing is in advertising. What you never want is a change that only affects you. So like, you know, your ad account gets shut down or, you know, you get some kind of negative quality score on your, you know, Facebook account and you, they charge you more for clicks. Um, there's an account health thing. I can show you guys where to look at that. But basically, you never want something that affects only you. Something that affects the entire ecosystem is fine it's like, yeah, things are different now. Tracking is harder. Remarketing is going to be a little bit more difficult. Facebook's metrics are going to be a little bit off. There's going to be new technology coming out to support us advertisers to make it through this lack of data. But it's like, we've been through this before. Google took away all the keyword data. Panda and Penguin rolled out, updated the algorithms. It's like, we have seen this. And when it happens to the entire ecosystem, it's good because what that means is the people with the best products, the best sales funnels, the people who make the best promises, and the people who have the most compelling ads are still going to win. Yes, is the auction going to look a little different? Is things going to be shaken up for a while? Are we going to have to figure out new technologies like server-side pixels and things like that? Sure. But it's ultimately not a problem because it's happening to everybody, in my opinion.
1: Yeah. One thing I want to touch base on is you know backing out of the advertising world and just kind of talk about how you've been able to build three separate companies. I would imagine, you know, every entrepreneur out there, myself included, maybe not every entrepreneur, but we tend to to be ideas guys, right? We see the potential in everything. That's what makes us great, but it may also spread us too thin. Do you feel like having three different businesses is kind of like your max capacity or what is your vision with all the businesses working in harmony?
0: Yeah. Well, it's one of those things where I don't start one business until the other one is I go deep rather than wide. So it's like, Hey, it looks like I'm running three businesses and I am, but I also have 130 employees. Right. And I've got CMOs, CEOs, COOs, project managers, copywriters, designers, developers. Like I've got systems and processes in place where, yeah, I'm the CEO, but I'm not actually doing anything other than talking to people about what they're doing, giving feedback and providing strategy and direction and container. Like I'm the navigator. I'm not the driver. And I don't start a new venture unless I'm, fully navigating one. If I'm still driving at all, my brain space can't handle being involved in a second company or third company or fourth company. I actually have other cycles going on, but I've focused a lot from the very beginning on delegation, structure. I have a whole course on this, you know, scale, systems, processes, and really empowering and enabling leaders to run these companies with my strategic direction, oversight, and financial backing. And of course, I'm in the day to day. I'm on the team meetings. I'm in the Slack channel, but I don't have anything to do other than hold the container, hold the vision, talk to people and make decisions. So it makes it easy to have multiple things because I'm not actually like running any ads or building any funnels or sourcing any product or, you know, writing any copy or I'm not doing any of that anymore. And that's how I do it. And we can talk about that, but I don't think it's fair to compare, Hey, you know, someone who's just getting started. I'm 15 years into this. Right. And, you know, boom started in 2010, smart marketer, 2013, Zipify 2015. So they were a few years apart and I only started them after I'd had the other ones pretty well going.
1: How do you find that integrator or that COO, CEO who can run the business? Is that something that you're grooming? I bring them up
0: from support for the most part. I don't usually hire people who are high. I mean, now I do. Now I have money. But when I started all these companies, I didn't have money. And so I would bring people up from support, have them play every role in the company, have them shadow me, start giving them more responsibility. And each one of my COOs at this point is somebody who I brought up over the years from some form of entry-level position.
1: How do you know that they're getting it or on the pathway or that they will be successful in that role?
0: So- the role requires the role's actually quite easy, but it requires very good people skills. And I'm a good you know, I grew up in a intentional community, sort of hippie commune place and I've studied my whole life interpersonal communication and so I'm a good read of social skills people skills communication abilities you know ability to not control one's emotional state but notice one's emotional state and respond rather than like sort of respond with whatever emotion they're feeling rather than react to it so I'm, I can tell how good people are with people and in order to play this role it's actually a simple role here's what you have to do you have to understand every operation within the company. So what's happening, and this is my job to tell you this, or the CMO or whoever who's responsible for the department, like, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? When is it supposed to be done? And who's responsible for each part? So as the COO, you need to know every operation from supply chain and logistics, to marketing and operations, to copywriting, to design, to development, to the whole thing, finance, what is supposed to be happening by when, who is responsible And what's the point of that in the bigger picture. And you need to understand that from those leaders. And then you need to hold people accountable to have that happen and track it for them. So create the tracking system. We use Trello and Asana. I don't know if that's how you say Asana, but so, you know, create the cards, make sure people are moving them around, check in with people where they are, like just bang on people and ensure, I call them the guarantor of the operation. They guarantee the operation. They don't actually have to know how to do anything. They just need to know what's supposed to be done, who's supposed to be doing it, why they're doing it, and when it's supposed to be done and ensure that that happens. So somebody who's detail-oriented with good people skills can excel very much in that role
1: how much hand holding do you have when cuz cuz i think about this they start off as a customer support agent they go up the ranks they learn everything within the business and then all of a sudden you know they're the boss of all their peers this
0: is a process of many many years and by the way i put them through courses i send them to events i get, have them get certifications i ensure that they're well trained i have them subscribe to blogs and I do this for every position that populate into a Slack channel that they read six hours a week and then take notes and we talk about. So I heavily, especially at the beginning, invest in their skills and knowledge and support them. And now, of course, I've got my team leaders supporting the people under them in growing their skill set. but we're constantly training and supporting people on their path to growth. And it's like, yeah, maybe my CMO started in customer support, but that was in 2012. By the time most of the team was hired, that person was no longer in support.
1: Yeah. Do they know that they're kind of being, you know, this is the pathway for them or is it something?
0: So at the beginning, yes. At the beginning, I would say, Hey, I want you to be the best social media director in the world within three years. Here's how we're going to get you there. Now we're so big and our leadership positions are basically full. And if we need something, it's very specific and we'll go out and hire it that it's generally like, Hey, if you start in support or if you start in some other role, there's room for you to maybe join the copy team, to maybe join the social team, to maybe join the ambassador team, you know, and you'll work in support for a couple of years. And if we have something open up in social, the social team lead will look at the support crew or look at, you know, one of the other crews that is easy to pull from and say, I want to bring this person on my team. It's less like there's a whole bunch of opportunity now because we're so established and we still do move people from support into social, support into copywriting, support into project management because the COO now has multiple project managers who work under her in each business. So it's like we're a little bit less that way than we were when we were more scrappy.
1: Yeah. I would imagine a little bit of that has to play with the person in the role and what their pathway for their career is as well. Like they kind of describe where they want to go or.
0: Yeah. Someone has to want
1: it. Yeah. They got to want it. One of the things we talked about before we hit record was you've built uh, remote teams. Is that still the case for all three companies? Are they entirely remote or are they kind of a hybrid of that?
0: I started out 100% remote and hiring my friends, family, cousins, you know, whoever I could convince to work with me, and then outsourcing stuff to Elance and Odesk for design and development and things that I, I couldn't hire at the time. And that was really wonderful. The problem with hiring friends and family is your friends and family tend to generally be a homogenous group. So you end up with like all white dudes, which Hey, there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but you don't necessarily end up with a diverse sort of culture or set of viewpoints within your company. So early on, I realized, wow, if I keep hiring friends and family, it's going to be just all these people I know. So I started looking out for friends of friends and, you know, bringing women onto the team and making sure I was trying to like have more diversity before that was like a pop cultural thing, which by the way, I think is a really good initiative and mission. And I love that companies are paying attention to that now. And I did all virtual. And then I came up with this concept of virtual local where basically it's like, okay, I have a project manager in San Diego. If I'm going to hire another project manager, I'm going to do it in San Diego. If I'm going to hire another copywriter, I'm going to do it in San Francisco. If I'm going to hire another advertiser, I'm going to do it in LA. And so I ended up with, at a certain point, sub teams that lived within a proximity to one another so they could get together and talk about their particular department. Then we got so big that sort of went out the window. So now it's just back to hundred percent virtual. And I think there's a lot of upsides to virtual only, and I can tell you about them. And there's a lot of downsides too. And the reason I did virtual was not because I thought it would make me more money, not because I thought it was a smarter business model. It was because I... I'm a bit of a recluse. I didn't want to have to go to an office every day. I'm sort of like a charismatic hermit where I can come out and like, you know, rub elbows and have a bunch of fun with groups of folks for a couple days. And then it's like I want to go back to my cave on the top of the mountain and make stuff and not talk to anybody but my wife. Like I'm a little socially awkward in that way. And I knew that about myself. And I was like, I am not going to thrive in an office environment. I don't want to have to travel anywhere. I like working from home. I like being able to have lunch with my wife. And like, so I, I did it from a lifestyle choice. That was my desired lifestyle was to work from home. And It had a lot of downsides in that, you know, when you get a big giant group of people virtual, it's like way harder to keep everybody on task. It's way harder to keep everybody organized. You have to get really freaking good at systems and processes and oversight and virtual calls. And like, there's just a lot of technology and systems that you need everybody to adhere to in order to be successful and organized. And the collaborative effect of being in person just is unlike anything you can do on a call. And so, what I discovered was that operations run really well, virtually strategy does not. So I started getting my leadership team together once a quarter, all the way back in 2013. And my leadership team is very small at that point. And now obviously COVID has thrown a wrench in this, but for each business, the leadership team would meet at least three times a year to do strategy in person for a couple of days. Of course, I'd have them come to my place, make them food, talk to them, the whole thing. But strategy works really well in person, and it doesn't work well virtually. And so if you're the sole strategist, fine. But if you're going to run a virtual company, I would recommend that if you're ever doing strategy sessions, you, you do them in person.
1: Yeah, I'll echo that. We've been doing strategy sessions since the beginning of Beard Brand, and it's been very instrumental in our, our growth. And, and not just the growth, but the enjoyment of the journey. You talk about having 130 employees. Are any of these employees like part of a holding company or are they all within each individual company? Like, how is your structure set up?
0: Yeah. So it's not exactly fair because 66 of them are full time developers for Zipify. So, Zipify is my most resource intensive business because I need front end engineers, back end engineers, QAs, project managers, you know, scrum masters, product managers, like, the product team in a software company is insane. The product team in an e-commerce company is really easy. You're outsourced to a third-party manufacturer. You don't employ any of those people. You just pay them for the product. But when you're building a code base that integrates with other code bases, that's amorphous, that you're adding stuff to and changing things to. And it's like you need a team. And so literally half of my employees are just you know on the development side of Zipify. Then every other company, right? Zipify also has you know, 18 people who are on the support marketing, you know, project management, you know, copywriting design advertising side. So Zipify has like 80 team members and then boom has about 28 and that's, you know, 12 or 13 support people distributed all across the United States, you know, CTO, COO, CMO, couple copywriters, four or five people on the social team, couple people on the ambassador team, you know, like that. So it's got a, a couple of people on, on the product team. So Boom's got a pretty big team. And then Smart Marketer also has, you know, let's, has the smallest team. It's more like maybe 18 or 20 people. And they're also all distributed. They all work for that particular corporation or that LLC, but they're all distributed throughout the United States. And then I also now have a new Amazon brand where I just have it with a partner. At this point, we're just using outsourcers, but eventually that will be its own company and have its own employees as well.
1: Are you hiring any international team members or... You mentioned two of them are 100% in USA.
0: Yeah. I've got a guy in, um, starts with a P and it's in Europe. I'm forgetting the name of it. Poland. No, 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 no. It's escaping me. So anyway, I got a guy in Europe and I got a couple folks in Canada, but that's sort of the extent of it. I haven't really ever done well with international employees, but I'm starting now to figure that out. I hired a woman in London who just recently has a project manager role for Boom. So I'm starting to understand how to deal with the tax and infrastructure and you know, it's just had been beyond my scope of understanding or skill, So I just never did it. But now I'm starting to sort of get how you do that.
1: Portugal. Was it that?
0: There it is. Well done. It's Portugal. That's what it is. Wow. I was not going to remember that.
1: I've got a Portuguese on my team as well. So. That's awesome. Yeah. It's a good place. Apparently there's nice
0: beaches and the whole thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So you said you've got an Amazon brand in the work. So is e-com, is that your baby? Like, is that what you get the most excited about?
0: Well, you know, when I look at my vision, right, I started out as a poker player on the New York city underground. You know, I met my wife when I moved to New York, when I was 19, we got married very shortly after. And she didn't like that. I was, you know, hanging out with guys with guns, you know, and who were in the mafia. And she's like, you need to get a job. So I got a job at this yoga studio. I ended up falling into e-commerce in 05, working for a guy, whole long story there. He was a trip started my first business in 2007, eventually was able to quit my full-time job at the yoga studio by end of 2009. And I had the e-com business. And at that point, I'd run a services agency and done all kinds of stuff, affiliate marketing, whatever. And you know, I've tried, I've done it all. I've done affiliate marketing at scale. I've done services at scale. I've done now software as a service at scale, e-commerce at scale, information publishing at scale. And e-commerce is far and away the easiest and best model. The reason for that is when you look at the three pillars of a business. In my opinion, okay, and just because it's my opinion doesn't mean it's right, but it is my opinion. So I'll give it to you. You've got marketing, product, and support. In my humble opinion, which is not so humble, marketing is the same in every business. You got to tell stories, you got to run ads, you got to build funnels, you got to, you know, there's a whole. It's the same process for every business. It's a little bit different, but pretty much the same. Okay, support. E-commerce is the easiest. It's questions about the products refunds. That's kind of it. You know, support and information publishing is very difficult. The support people need to understand the information and support and software is the most difficult because the support people have to be better at the technology than the business owners who are using the technology. So supports difficult in info and most difficult in software and least difficult in e-commerce product is a freaking nightmare. It is a rabbit hole of never ending madness in software. It's the hardest thing I've ever done is build software. The product is constantly changing. It's talking to other products that are constantly changing. You know, It's insane. So product is extremely difficult. It's a code base. Uh, information publishing or services, well, I won't talk about services, but I'll just talk about info publishing. Product goes out of style, right? You make a course and six months later, you need to redo it. So it's like it's constantly dying, the product. Well, With e-commerce, it's like you get your tub, you make sure it's a real nice tub. I'm just going to say some of the stuff I sell. It's like ocean waste plastic. You know, you're saving the oceans. You get a label for that thing or you screen print it. You mix up some goop, you put it in the tub, and then you do that more at scale. It's like more tubs, more goop, more labels. And it's a very simple process. And so marketing is the same level of difficulty for every business. Product is by far the easiest for e-commerce. Support is by far the easiest for e-commerce. And scalability of e-commerce versus software information is also the easiest because software, you tend to be talking to a very, very niche audience. And information, you tend to be talking to a very, very niche audience. Well, e-commerce is widely relevant. And listen, you don't make money from cash flow businesses. You make money from the liquidation of assets. You want to talk about wealth generation. Ooh, look, I'm in this for a couple of reasons, which we can get into. But one of them and one of the core pillars is I want to generate resource. And I want to use that resource towards causes that I find noble, taking care of my family, supporting my community, and supporting causes in the world that I think are worth supporting, like saving the rainforest and protecting the waters and all kinds of other stuff I want to do. And so at the end of the day, if one of my main goals of being in business is to generate resource, well, cash flow businesses don't generate resource, asset liquidation does. And so I am buying and building assets to sell because that is how you generate wealth. And e-commerce businesses are the easiest of those three to sell as well. So it's just the best business model by far, in my opinion.
1: One thing I wanted to touch base on is the product end of it. You you make it sound so easy, but we've had a lot of pain with product. It's always challenging. Where do you go for the inspiration of developing good products? And how do you ensure that it's something that will resonate with the audience so that your marketing costs are lower?
0: Yeah. Fair point. Product's a nightmare in e-commerce also. Don't get me wrong. You've got all these components and you're constantly running out of, you know, they change the component. They don't make those ones anymore. You can't get them for six months. And you know, your your formulator makes a bad batch and you end up sending out 2000 things that are moldy. I'm not saying product is easy. I'm just saying compared to the other business models, it's easier. In the long run and in the short term too, I have a full product team. I've got a woman who's a sustainability coordinator. I send her around every sustainability conference, every cosmetic conference in the country. She's traveling to those learning about stuff, bringing ideas back. I get all my product ideas from my actual customers. So I have long form product survey that goes out to my people who buy from me twice, asking them what else they want me to make. It's like a 30 question survey that's constantly being updated. That is asking my customers what more they want from me. And so I'm constantly getting ideas and my goal is to launch four products a year. I've never achieved it. I've only ever launched two products every year. So I'm not like launching mass amounts of product this year. I think we'll get three out. I still didn't reach four. And that's because you're right. You know, you need to develop the formula. You need to dial it in just right. You need to dial in the scent. Just right. I mean, I'm talking about lotions and potions, which is what I sell. So, you know, if you're selling electronics, maybe it's a little different. You're selling apparel, maybe it's a little different. You need more products, but for me, I have to dial in my formula. I've got to send it out to my ambassadors for them to test it and get their feedback on it. I've got to make sure my components are dialed in. Like, there's just so much, but I have a whole team for that. You know, I've got a project manager just for product development. I've got a sustainability coordinator just for product development, and I've got a product formulation consultant who works ten hours a week, meets with us on calls, who's been in the space forever, who gives us their advice, and then obviously me and my COO. So there's like five or six of us who are meeting at least weekly and talking in our. Slack channel about the products that we have coming up. But our inspiration for product comes directly from customers.
1: Where can people grab a hold of you, get to know more about you or support your businesses?
0: You can go to at Ezra Firestone on Twitter, at Ezra Firestone on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I'm on YouTube. Zipify, if you're a Shopify merchant, I'm most proud of my Zipify one-click upsell application. It's currently rated by Shopify Plus Merchants as the best post-purchase upsell application in the ecosystem for native Shopify checkout, which is really wonderful. So you can check that out at Shopify Apps Store and Zipify. And that's where you find me.
1: Sweet, man. Well, I appreciate having me on the show. You are a wealth of knowledge and I've got some notes that I want to take with me.
0: Rock and roll, man.
1: This has been another e-commerce conversations. Hope you guys are doing well. Cheers and keep on growing.